I hope you've already opened your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. If not, that's where we'll be, chapters 12 and 13 this morning. And uh, well, here we go. We are, we are, those of you who have been reading ahead or have spent time in Revelation, you know what's coming this week at the end of chapter 13. Chapter 13 of, uh, or chapters 12 and 13 of Revelation are, uh, last week I, I probably misspoke. I said chapter 11 is one of the most hotly debated chapters of Revelation, and that's true. But so are chapters 12 and 13, particularly chapter 13, which introduces us to two beasts. And the second beast is the one that likes to mark people with the number of his name, which is 666. We know that John loves numbers, and uh, uh, throughout Revelation he's referring to lots of different numbers, and that may be the most famous of numbers that John references in Revelation. We'll get to it in time near the end of uh, near to the end of the sermon this morning. And let me just um, let me just encourage and disappoint everybody all at once. Uh, be encouraged to know that. Uh, uh, there's not maybe as much mystery, I don't think, around the, 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 the individual that is the beast, perhaps, as maybe we have thought. And also, let me discourage many of you or disappoint many of you. I'm not going to point fingers and name names as to who the beast is. Uh, plenty of people have tried and failed before me. I don't want to add my name to a list of people who have uh, wrongly identified the beast in history. Chapters, yeah, amen, that's right. I'd prefer not to be on a list of people who have embarrassed themselves uh, when it comes to the end times, but uh, we're going to try to do our best to work faithfully through these two chapters of God's Word. In chapters 12 and 13 of Revelation, we find that, that though ultimately defeated by Christ's death and resurrection, Satan is violently scheming to slow the advance of the Lamb's kingdom. Satan is defeated. When Christ died on the cross, when he rose again, he put the last nail in the coffin of the devil. But just like so many defeated enemies do, before they surrender, they're going to make a whole hot mess of things on their way out. And that's precisely what Satan is doing. We'll find that those who belong to the Lamb will be spiritually protected uh, though, vul- though physically vulnerable through Satan's attacks. And, and, though, and while we are spiritually protected by the Lamb, though physically vulnerable, we must endure as faithful witnesses to Jesus until the end. The main idea of Revelation 12 and 13, and I'd like to include chapter 14 in this, but we'll get to it next week. But the main idea of Revelation 12 and 13 is this. Christians do not struggle against flesh and blood. Ours is a spiritual battle. If you take nothing away from Revelation 12 and 13 this morning, other than that, take that home. That Christians do not battle, we do not war against flesh and blood. Our battle is a spiritual battle. Regardless this morning of our conclusions, individually or corporately, about who or what the beast and his mark are, Christians must be resolved to resist the influence of Satan in every age. We must look to Christ, the true Lamb. We must endure with faithfulness. We must pray for God to open the eyes of the spiritually blinded, knowing that our battle is a spiritual battle. We must be committed to these things. So look in your Bibles, follow along as I read Revelation 12, verses 1 through 17. We saw the end of chapter 11 last week. Uh, The seventh trumpet blows uh, we we see uh, we hear this song of um, uh, uh, of the elders in the heavenly throne room. God's temple in heaven is opened. The ark of His covenant was seen. A picture of God's imminent presence with His people. In chapter twelve, John continues, and a great sign appeared in heaven. 
a woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. In the verses we've already had, I heard this morning, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he, has been, that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for time, times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Revelation chapter 12 reveals to us that the gospel is spiritual warfare. The gospel is spiritual warfare. Now, just like John had done between the sixth and the seventh seals and the sixth and the seventh trumpets, now he's taking kind of a, uh, a slight detour. He's making an interlude in relating his vision to encourage, to encourage believers living through persecution and hardship. He took an interlude between the sixth and seventh seals, an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets, and now he's taking kind of an interlude between the seals and the trumpets before he gets to the bowls. He tells us through this image in chapter 12 of a woman and a son and a dragon and a war in heaven that the gospel is heavenly warfare, spiritual warfare. And just as Jesus uses parables all throughout his ministry to teach heavenly truths using images of the day, I think in a similar way, John is here using otherworldly symbolism to relate to the readers of Revelation, to the first century church and to the church in every age, the realities of the gospel. Chapter 12 is a gospel story told through the sim, uh, various symbols. The woman that John sees is clearly the people of God. She's crowned with 12 stars. Think 12 tribes of Israel, right? She is pregnant with a son who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. 
This is a, a, a near citation of Psalm 2, which promises that the Son of God will rule or shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. The, the earliest uh, messianic psalm, or one of the psalms that was most uh, 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 quickly to be recognized as a psalm speaking about the, the deliverance uh, that God would bring through His Son. But this woman who is the people of God is accosted. She's attacked. She is uh, uh, in danger by a dragon. This is wonderful imagery. Like, why aren't there more children's books with these illustrations? This dragon, this fiery red creature is grotesque, isn't he? He's nasty. I love that word, grotesque. I think I learned it in fifth grade. Love it. He's ugly. He's nasty. He's got seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. His heads are a picture of power. His horns are a picture of rulers, earthly rulers that are under his sway. And his crowns are a sign of earthly influence and and earthly dominion. And this dragon is trying to kill a baby. That's his familiar image, isn't it? It sounds a lot like Herod who killed all the baby boys when he heard that a Messiah was being born in Judea. In Matthew 2, it sounds a lot like Pharaoh who's killing all the Hebrew babies so that their sons might not grow up to form an army and resist him and and bring their people to deliverance in Exodus 1. It sounds like the enmity that has existed between the offspring of Eve and the serpent from Genesis 3 when God cursed the serpent saying, the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Revelation 12.9 tells us that the dragon is that ancient serpent, Satan, and the devil. He is the one who has been at enmity with the offspring of the woman since the beginning. This woman, this son, this dragon tell the story of God's working through his people to bring redemption to the world in a way that totally frustrates and destroys the dragon's schemes. This is a story of victory. When the son is born, he's caught up to the father's throne. This is the strangest Christmas and Easter story you've ever heard, I promise. But that's what it is. The Son is the Messiah who comes from God's people, Israel, who lives sinlessly, who dies as a sacrifice for sinners and is raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father as the Lamb who is standing as those slain that we saw in Revelation 5. This woman is not just Israel, but also the church. And so are her offspring. Now, that's kind of weird to think about two images reflecting kind of one people. This woman and her offspring are all of God's people throughout history. But we need to, when we read Revelation, try to avoid very wooden interpretations of these symbols, right? These symbols are kind of, they're kind of wiggly, right? Uh, uh, they're, they're kind of fudgeable a little bit. Two things can be the picture, of, two, two symbols can be a picture of, of the one same thing. Both chapter 12, verse 6 and verse 14 tell us that the woman is cared for in the wilderness, like the Hebrews when they were delivered from slavery were, cared for for 1,260 days or a time, times, and half a time. This is a picture, friends, of God's protection of his people from destruction by the dragon. God protects them in a place that isn't the place of their slavery, but it's also not their final home. The wilderness is a, a, an in-between time for God's people. It's an in-between place for God's people. Out of slavery, but not all the way home yet. It's a time of wandering and, and waiting upon the provision of God. After this son that she bears is caught up to heaven, we read, and beginning in verse 7, a war erupting in the heavenly realm. A war between Michael and the dragon. 
That great angel Michael fights against this this serpentine beast, this dragon who is Satan, and ultimately casts him down to the earth. It's, It's really not much of a battle at all. Michael begins the war, the dragon tries to fight, and within the course of about a verse and a half, the dragon's defeated. Now, some think that this scene, this war in heaven between Michael and the dragon, goes all the way back to the original fall of Satan in his rebellion against God in primordial spiritual history. But I think that it makes better sense to see this heavenly war as the Messiah's defeat of Satan on the cross. Right? We, we read that the, the child was caught up to God and to his throne. A picture of Christ's resurrection from the dead and ascension to heaven. And then war breaks out. Chapter 12, verses 10 through 12 are the, the theological center of this chapter. We need to focus in on that. These verses tell us that salvation and power and the kingdom of God and of Christ have come and that Satan no longer has access to accuse believers of their sin in God's heavenly court. This war that wages in heaven is an expulsion. It's an eviction of Satan from God's courtroom once and forever. Why? Because Christ has died for sins and been raised again. The shout of victory in verses 10 through 12 is telling us that Jesus, by his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, has inaugurated his kingdom in Satan's accusations against God's people. Like we see Satan accusing Job in Job chapter 1, where where there the, the accuser goes into the heavenly court and says to God, your servant Job isn't all that great. Sure, he's faithful to you. You've given him all of this stuff. Take it away, and I promise he'll curse your name. That's what Satan does. He accuses God's people. But now, since Christ has died on the cross for sins, been raised from the dead, ascended as the Lamb who is the Lion of Judah, Satan's accusations no longer have any bearing in God's heavenly court. Satan has been expelled from the prosecutor's bench because the penalty for sins that he would love to accuse believers of has been paid. And all his charges against God's elect no longer have any standing. Because the son's victory over sin, uh, because of the son's victory over sin in the grave, Satan, that dragon, is defeated, and every Christian can sing with the apostle Paul. Can say with confidence, along with the apostle Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no one in heaven or on earth who can bring an accusation against us. Christ has paid the penalty. The Satan's, uh, the, the, the accuser's accusations have been defanged. His threats have been minimized, have been uh, uh, entirely depleted. Better still, we read that those who are in Christ are conquerors with Christ because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the blood that He shed for us, because of the, the life that He gave for our sins. And they overcome, they conquer the dragon and His angels through their living testimony to the Lamb's name. They have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. This story in chapter 12, this vision of the woman and the dragon and the sun, is like a heavenly parable of sorts that relates to us the wonderful victory of Christ over the devil and of God's faithfulness to His people to do through them and to do for them what He has promised. Now, of course, the dragon is a sore loser unwilling to admit defeat. And so in his rage, he determines to destroy the woman and her offspring. If Satan cannot harm God's elects standing in heaven, he will certainly content himself with harming their physical bodies. And the torrent of his wrath is hindered by God's grace from totally destroying them. Yes, but Satan is still fighting. 
And we learn about the kind of warfare that he wages in chapter 13. Follow along in your Bibles. John continues. Uh, the end of uh, chapter 12, verse 17, is kind of a hard verse to place. Some scholars think it goes with verse 17 of chapter 12. Some think it should go at the beginning of chapter 13. So I'll just read it again, and then we'll go into 13. And the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty, arrogant, and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given, was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, the Lamb, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to, te- to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Seems like a good place to dismiss for the morning. Chapter 12 tells us, we won't, chapter 12 tells us that the gospel is spiritual warfare. Right? The good news that Christ died for sinners and was raised again and ascended to the right hand of the Father and, and, and has secured salvation for all whose faith in Him is spiritual warfare. It's warfare against Satan and his schemes to undo and usurp God's authority and to destroy those who who would seek to worship God or just to destroy image bearers of God. The gospel is spiritual warfare. And Satan is fighting a war against believers. Chapter 13 of Revelation tells us that Satan's schemes are sophisticated. Satan, in the way that he wages warfare, is sophisticated. He's a smart, smart individual. 
The first 10 verses, this first beast that we see coming out of the sea, shows us that Satan shrouds his actions. He shrouds his, his spiritual warfare in, in the guise of powerful institutions. As chapter 13 opens, we find the dragon, who is Satan, stationed next to the symbolic source of chaos, the sea. The sea is where all the bad stuff comes from. The sea is that scary place where strange monsters lie underneath the surface of the waters. And out of the sea, the dragon brings this beast that looks remarkably like the dragon, doesn't he? He's got seven heads, ten horns, ten crowns. Chapter 17 tells us that the seven heads are the seven mountains and are seven mountains and seven kings. That is no coincidence that the Rome, Rome as the empire was said to be the empire that, that rests or the kingdom that rests on seven hills. Moreover, this beast looks like a combination of four beasts from Daniel chapter 7, which each represent human governments that would rule from Daniel's day until the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah who would ultimately destroy all of these kingdoms and establish his own uh, 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 imperishable kingdom. And so this first beast out of the sea is a picture of wicked totalitarian governments with Rome, that city, on a, uh, that city on seven hills or that kingdom on seven hills, serving as the primary example that Satan uses to destroy God's people. The beast has a mortal wound that appears healed. This is a hard symbol to understand, but the word that's translated mortal wound is the same word that is translated slaughtered in Revelation chapter 5 verse 6 or slain when John says he saw a lamb standing as though slain, a lamb standing as though slaughtered. It would seem that the first beast with this mortal wound the appearing slaughtered but healed is trying in some way to copycat the resurrection of the lamb. It's also interesting to note that Nero, the emperor, who was the first great Roman persecutor of Christians, though he took his own life in, in, in about the year 68 AD, was thought to actually not be dead at all. There were rumors circulating that, like Elvis or JFK or Tupac Shakur, that Nero was going to reappear, that he was going to be raised from the dead, as it were, to reclaim Rome for himself. He was going to come back and wage warfare against the kingdom. This beast... We see coming out of the sea with seven heads, ten hordes, ten crowns, looking a whole lot like the dragon who has seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. This beast is politically powerful and maybe militarily powerful as well, such that the whole world of unbelievers worships it. They say nothing and no one is like the beast. Christians sing, as we did this morning, who is like the Lord our God? Those who do not believe the Lord, those who look on the beast and tremble with fear or admiration say, who is like the beast? The beast loves to glorify itself. It sees itself as the greatest and most glorious of things in the world. The beast even openly defies uh, God and persecutes God's people. The beast ultimately separates the earth dwellers from the heaven dwellers. Did you see that? Under the reign of the beast, earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth from every tribe, nation, and people and language who worship the beast get to live. And heaven dwellers, those whose home is in heaven, who worship the lamb, are taken captive and killed. All through Revelation, we see this separating of humanity into one of two camps, either with the beast and the dragon or with the Lord and the lamb, with God and with his Christ. And it's happening here. Even as John notes that this beast who is controlled by the dragon hates the saints of God, 
we need to remember that God is ultimately sovereign in all that is going on here. Even with this beast coming out of the sea, waging war on the saints, God is not off of his throne or out of control here. The lamb has not ceased to be reigning. Rather, we're reminded that even the saints' captivity, even the saints' death, if, if, if someone is to be taken to captivity, to captivity he goes. If someone is to be slain by the sword, then, then to be slain he will be. Here's a call to, for endurance and faith for the saints. We are reminded that even the saints' captivity and death are not outside the providence of God. To the church at Smyrna, Jesus said in Revelation 2.10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Here in chapter 13, verse 10, John is saying to the church, The knowledge that you may suffer captivity and death is a call. It's a call to endure by the blood of the Lamb. It's a call to be faithful unto death, knowing that the Lamb, who is the risen Son of God, will give you the crown of life. God is not out of control, even in the midst of the wrath of this beast. Satan likes to shroud his warfare in political institutions, powerful political institutions like Rome and other totalitarian governments uh, that, that would follow after him. Verses 11 through 18 of chapter 13 tell us that Satan also, the beast, the, or excuse me, the dragon, through the authority of the beast, invites unholy worship of himself and oppresses, quote-unquote, heretics, those who would deny that the beast is worthy of worship. Satan, friends, is a master deceiver and pretender. That's no surprise to you, or at least it shouldn't be. And so this unholy facade, this war against the triune God, requires his own sort of unholy trinity. Just as God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so Satan puts forward his own perverted trilogy of dragon, beast, and false prophet. A false prophet is exactly what the second beast is, this beast who comes from the earth. We've got a beast that comes from the sea, a beast that comes from the earth. This beast who comes from the earth comes in a messianic sort of posture. He looks like a deliverer. He looks like a lamb, John says. But his voice is not the voice of the Son of God. His voice is not the voice of the Lamb. His voice is the voice of the dragon. He's a pretender. He's a fake Messiah. He's a false Savior. Just as the Son of God has the authority of the Father, the second beast has the authority of the first beast. Did you catch that? And as Jesus is the avenue to fellowship with the Father, so this second beast from the earth calls earth dwellers to worship the beast. This beast has the ability to capture the attention and to capture the devotion of the people on the earth, either by magical illusion or by actual spiritual dark arts like the priests of Pharaoh. This beast can imitate, though not duplicate, the miraculous power of God. More still, he makes an idol of the first beast and he requires the people of the earth to worship the first beast under penalty of death. This is reminiscent of the statue to himself that that Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had, had built in Daniel chapter 3. And they're calling all people throughout Babylon to worship the statue that he made of himself. And if not, they're to be thrown in a fiery furnace and burned to death. This image likely rung in the ears of the first century church as some of them looked on the temples to Roman emperors that were built in their cities. 
and the pressure that they faced from fellow guildsmen and local authorities to offer sacrifices to Rome and offer sacrifices to the emperor. Such is an image that is not alien either to Christians over the last two centuries who have lived in communist-controlled China, the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, and the totalitarian state of North Korea. Believers in these places have been witness to governments and individuals that have acted altogether beastly. Totalitarian states like these each sought to pummel Christians and Christianity into the ground. They required worship-like devotion to the party or a particular leader, to a dictator, if not outright worship altogether. It is still not uncommon to find dictators of nations today deifying themselves, calling for the worship of the people. Nation states like this often had leaders who, who made themselves as God and had nonconformists arrested and beaten, threatened, even killed for not going along with the state-prescribed devotion and state-prescribed worship. And so as to make life as hard as possible for the people of God, this beast who comes up out of the earth requires people to make their allegiance public by taking the mark of the beast on their foreheads or on their hands. This mark is the absolute opposite of the seal of God that is on the foreheads of His saints that we saw in Revelation 7 and that we'll be reminded of in Revelation 14 as we look at it next week. The mark of the beast in this way is not a physical mark, but it's a mark of allegiance to the beast. It's a mark of of heart alignment to and with the beast. In the same way that the law of God was to be a sign on the foreheads and on the hands of the Israelites that we read about from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. And in the same way that the seal of God is a mark of His ownership and His protection of His people. They are sealed on their foreheads, figuratively, spiritually speaking, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3. In the, in the, same, in the same similar way, the beast, the dragon, has his own perverse mark that he puts on people. The mark of the beast is a swearing of allegiance to the beast over and against God. It is in this way not something that can be taken accidentally by Christians. Let me encourage you by that. The mark of the beast is not something that can be accidentally taken by Christians. I've heard from from many, from Christians who have often wondered, what if I accidentally take the mark of the beast? When we know what the mark of the beast is, that, that John is intentionally positioning it in contradistinction to the seal of God, we understand that the seal of God is not a physical seal. When you, come a, when you become a follower of Jesus, a tattoo with God's name does not appear on your forehead. At least I haven't gotten one yet. And if, and if that's what it is, then friends, I, I may not be a Christian, I guess. But we know from Scripture that that's not how God works. God doesn't write His name on our foreheads literally. He puts His Spirit in our hearts, right? That's the seal of God. And so in the same way, the the beast is is, is subtle. The dragon is is a sneaky, conniving individual. He's, He's not going to be quite so obvious as to make people get tattoos or microchips implanted in their hands or a barcode on their forehead to force their allegiance to things. He's way more subtle than that. Friends, if you're afraid of the mark of the beast being a microchip in your hand or something like that, take your smartphone out of your pocket and throw it in the trash this afternoon. Friends, we need... Amen. Maybe just do it anyway. We have to remember, when we started this series in Revelation, we talked about several principles to keep in mind as we read this this book so we can interpret it rightly. The first one is to 
remember the main thing of Revelation. Remember the point of Revelation. Revelation is here to encourage saints, to encourage Christians to endure with faithfulness all the way until the end, holding fast to Jesus the Christ and the testimony of the gospel. That's the point of Revelation, to inspire, to encourage Christians to press on in faithfulness. But also we have to remember that, that Revelation is, a, is certainly a book that is for us. It is for Christians. It is for the church in every age. But Revelation was not first to us. Revelation was first to seven churches in seven cities in Asia Minor. And in written as a letter in, in that sort of uh, framework, John intended that the first readers of Revelation would understand what they were reading, that they'd be able to 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 apply real and significant meaning for their own life to what was reading here, to what they were reading here. So that knowing that, 2,000 years ago, there's absolutely no way that the first century Christians could have foreseen the mark of the beast as being a computer chip implanted in the hands of people. They simply had no conception of, of such things. And by the way, neither could the majority of Christians until the late 20th century even have that as a conception. Isn't that interesting? That, that only in like maybe the last 50 years was that idea, the idea of a computer chip implanted in your hand, even a possibility for the mark of the beast. So if it can only mean something to a, a group of Christians living 2,000 years after the writing of Revelation, then, then why does John bother to write anything to the first seven churches anyway? Rather, giving worship-like allegiance to a government, giving worship-like devotion to an anti-Christian ruler was a legitimate temptation for Christians in the first century. And friends, it's been a legitimate temptation for Christians in every century since. Christians today should not be worried that they might accidentally take the mark of the beast. In fact, the seal of God on our hearts ensures that we will not. Rather, we are to live And this is what John, I believe, is calling us to do in Revelation 13, to live with our spiritual eyes wide open to the ways that governments and totalitarian leaders and movements require total oblation, total worship, supreme allegiance to themselves above all other systems and faiths. We have seen the spirit of the beast over and over and over again the last 2,000 years of Christian history. John is calling us to live with our eyes open our spiritual eyes open. The beast can be known, he says, by knowing its number. And its number is the number of its name. Its number is 666. Maybe we should dismiss now. (laughs) Christians through the centuries have attempted to decipher what this means. John says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for for it is the number of a man, and its number is 666. No lack of examples have been given to who 666 belongs to. Among them are uh, the Roman Catholic Church, Mao Zedong, Hitler, Mikhail Gorbachev, Ronald Wilson Reagan. It's thought to be the beast at one time. I've heard uh, rumblings that Barack Obama was the beast. Friends, let's not get crazy. Gematria, maybe you've heard that word before, gematria was the ancient practice of applying numerical values to letters of the alphabet so as to get numbers that represent names. So A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, and so on. And you you assign a numeric value to the letter in each name, you add them all up or multiply them all the way through, whatever kind of game of gematria you're playing, and you get a number at the end that represents, that is the number of the name. 
And many scholars have noted that if you were to take the name Nero Caesar, who was that first great Roman persecutor in the mid-60s AD, take Nero Caesar and transliterate it from Greek into Hebrew. Greek was the, the common, uh, common language of the day in which John was writing, but Hebrew was also uh, uh, somewhat, still somewhat known and, and read and, and, and perhaps spoken in some circles by uh, some Jewish Christians living in the first century. If you take Nero Caesar and you transliterate it, that is, you take the sounds of the letters in Nero Caesar in Greek and you you assign them to the same sounds of letters in Hebrew, and you add up the value of those letters in Hebrew, do you know what you get? 666. Interestingly enough, there were some manuscripts of Revelation that have the number of the beast recorded not as 666, but as 616 which is the value of taking Nero Caesar in Latin, which was the language that was in vogue a little bit after Greek, and transliterating it into Hebrew and adding up its numbers. Maybe this is what John is doing. Maybe he's saying the beast is one like Nero. Remember, John is writing 20-some years, maybe almost 30 years after the death of Nero. But Nero stood out as a, as a great picture of Christian persecution. Nero stood out as, as, as the portrait of, of the beast in, in, in an earthly sense, if we could put it that way. Maybe what John is doing here in Revelation is saying to the church, the beast is one like Nero, or the beast is Nero all over again. Some believe John meant to say that the beast was Nero, literally, specifically who persecuted the church and whose reign led up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There are a lot of varying opinions here. We're not going to put them all to bed this morning. But 666, John tells us, is also the number of a man, or maybe more generically, the number of man. If 777, a trifecta of sevens, seven being the number of of perfect divine fullness and power, if 777 is the number of divine perfection, then 666 would be the number of total human imperfection. Remember, man was created on the sixth day. And so six was uh, commonly thought to be the number of man. So a trifecta of sixes would be a a trifecta of man, uh, uh, humanity or human imperfection. Understood this way, the beast is human defiance of God and of his Christ at maximum volume. Now, it's easy for us to fixate on this beast to the point of losing sight of John's message to the church. Remember, John's message to the church is not figure out who the beast is. John's message to the church is endure with faithfulness until Christ returns. Scholar Craig Coster encourages us. He says, Instead of asking when the beast will appear or who the beast might be, we might better ask when the beast's presence is not apparent. When is the corruption of religious practice not a threat? When do the followers of the Lamb not experience pressures to give up their commitments? Endurance and faith, Coster says, constituted the path that John and his first century readers were already called to follow. And it has been the path for those who have come after them. The summons to persevere is not simply a message for a generation living in the first century or a generation living at the end of time. It is a message for all generations that are confronted with false worship and violence. This is how Satan works. He co-ops earthly governments 
who love to use totalitarian power to call worship to themselves. He co-ops uh, uh, earthly rulers and leaders who like to support the, the state to be as a figurehead for this totalitarian state to call worship to the state and maybe worship to themselves and persecute all the heretics, put to death all of those who oppose worship to the state. The gospel, friends, is spiritual warfare. Revelation 12 and 13 teach us that and show us it clearly. So what are we to do with it? What are we to do knowing that the gospel is spiritual warfare? Well, here's the Christian's battle plan for this heavenly war, for this spiritual war. Four parts to it. First of all, know that life with Christ is a battle against darkness. Know that following Jesus is to be opposed to the dragon. It is a battle against spiritual darkness. Understand, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is one of spiritual warfare. And since the moment of Christ's death and resurrection, Satan has been ferociously, furiously waging war against God's people on the earth. And he does so through corrupting and co-opting wicked human governments and governors and philosophies and political movements, and he's really good at doing it. And as soon as one dies out, he's really good at picking up another. As soon as one dictator dies, he's really good at, at raising up, at, at working in, at deceiving the mind of another to position himself there. Life with Christ is a battle against darkness. We need to live with our eyes, our spiritual eyes, wide open to this reality. Second, be not anxious or afraid. Yes, life with Christ is a battle against darkness, but Christian, don't be anxious or afraid. I say it again, don't be anxious or afraid. Yes, spiritual warfare is real. And Satan is really vying for power and influence in the minds of this world. But those who belong to Christ, those who have been sealed by God and whose names are in the Lamb's book of life, will not be deceived. If you know Christ, if your heart has been sealed by God's Holy Spirit as you have repented of sin and trusted in Jesus to save you from your sins, to make you right with God, you will not be deceived. Ours is the glorious reality and blessed hope of, re of resurrection unto everlasting life with Christ. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 to 31, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's not speaking about Satan. He's speaking about God. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, Jesus says, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, in my case, that's an easy job for God. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered, Jesus says to God's people. So fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Friend, if your faith is in Christ, if your life is hidden in Christ, do not be anxious or afraid of Satan's schemes in this world. You will not be deceived so long as you hold fast to Jesus, so long as you endure with faith until he returns or you meet him face to face in your death. Don't be anxious or afraid. Third, knowing that the gospel is spiritual warfare, knowing that following, knowing that following Jesus is spiritual warfare, and knowing that we shouldn't be anxious or afraid. Third, pray for governmental leaders. Pray for governmental leaders. Pray for their salvation. 
Pray for their allegiance to the Lamb. And pray for their protection from God against the schemes of the devil. Satan likes to use, as we see in Revelation 13, political institutions and political personalities to to his benefit as he's waging war against the saints and he's fighting hard against the advance of the gospel in the world. So what ought we to do? Take up the sword against the state. No. Pray for your leaders knowing that they are targets, specific targets of Satan's schemes and his deception. Pray for their salvation. Pray that they might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, the Lamb who died for sins and was raised again. Pray that they, through faith in Christ, might have the seal of God on them, that they might not be deceived, but live and govern and legislate with godliness and justice and God's righteousness in the world. Pray that those of our elected leaders who know Christ already would be totally allegiant, that their supreme allegiance would not be to a flag or to a nation or to an anthem, but that their supreme allegiance would be to the Lamb who stands as though slain before the God of all the universe. And pray for our governmental leaders' protection from God against the schemes of the devil. Paul writes to Young Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he instructs them, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, the apostle says, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior to pray for kings and those in high positions, who desires all people, God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The gospel is spiritual warfare. Satan loves to wage warfare through political institutions and political personalities. So friends, pray for our governmental leaders. Fourth and finally, pray for and proclaim the gospel to those who walk in darkness. Pray for and proclaim the gospel to those who walk in darkness. Jesus said in his nighttime discourse or dis, uh, conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, beginning of verse 19, he said to Nicodemus, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Speaking about himself, Jesus is the light of the world. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Those who do not know Christ, the light of the world, are walking in darkness. We see this picture in Revelation 12 and 13, the separating of of, of people into two camps, those who are with the lamb and those who are with the beast. Do you know who's not present there in Revelation 12 or 13? A neutral party in the middle. And actually, you won't find that neutral party anywhere in Scripture. You won't find them anywhere in Revelation. You won't find them anywhere in the New Testament. There are those who are with the Lamb, and there are those who are against Him. There are those whose allegiance and devotion is to Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, sacrificed for sins, raised in victory from the grave, and those who are opposed to Him. There are many in this world, though, who try to put themselves in that muddy middle to say, listen, I don't have a dog in that fight. God, Satan, they're fighting together. What, I'm just trying to live my life. I'm just trying to be a decent person, not kill anybody, work hard, make a living, leave something for my kids when I die. Why are you trying to pull me into this battle? Why are you trying to pull me into this war? Why are you trying to tell me that I, I need to choose a side either with God or against it? I just, listen, I'm like spiritual Switzerland, man. I'm staying out of it. Scripture says that option is not an option. To be neutral about the Lord, to be neutral about the gospel is to side with the dragon. 
And friends, that is one of his most successful deceitful tactics to convince people that not to choose is a safe place to be. That that they can just at the end of their life hope that they did enough good things to earn God's good grace. And if they didn't do that many bad things, it maybe won't be too terrible for them after they die. That, that, That if I don't get to the good place, I probably won't go to the bad place. I'll be in some sort of medium place after I die. Friends, there is no medium place. There is life forever in the presence of the glorious, beautiful, loving, benevolent, just, and righteous God and His Lamb. And there is life forever separated from Him in physical and spiritual torment in a place called hell, which is the just deserts for all of us who have rejected God and His glory and His design for the way that we live. There is no middle place. So pray for and proclaim the gospel to those who walk in darkness because so many of them don't even know that they're in darkness. And, and our attitude toward them not, ought not to be condescending like, you dingbat, walking in darkness, knucklehead, I'll leave you alone. You get, what, you, you, get, you get what's coming to you. Now, our attitude needs to be one of compassion and love for those who are walking in darkness. Why? Because before the light of Christ shone into our life, that's where we were too. Before we knew the love of Christ and, and, and the, the prospect of salvation and, and right standing before God through trusting in Jesus, we were just like them. So those, as, as those who have come to the light and enjoyed it and loved and delighted in knowing Jesus who died for sins and was raised again, we go in love and compassion with the same love and compassion that some blessed gospel witness showed to us. We take it to others who are still walking in darkness. We pray for them, and we proclaim the gospel to those who are walking apart from Jesus. Christians are fighting a spiritual battle. Revelation 12 and 13 assures it for us. It's not a battle for our forgiveness. Friends, Christ has already won that. And Christians are not fighting a battle for our eternal life. Jesus the Lamb has already died and risen again to secure it for us. But it is a battle against Satan, that dragon, that ancient serpent, and his deceptive forces. It is a battle against the temptation to compromise our faith for idolatry and empty philosophies that help us get along in the world. And we do not fight, though, in the strength of our might, but we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And we do not fight with the weapons of this world, but with the sword of God's Spirit, which is the gospel of Jesus and our living witness to His name. Do you want to be a conqueror? Do you want to be an overcomer? Hold fast to Jesus who died. Proclaim his name boldly in the world. The question is, friends, whether we will stand and endure or whether we will compromise and fall. There is no middle ground. There is a call in Revelation 12 and 13 to know whose side you are on. The side of the lamb or the side of the dragon. And it's a call that is before all of us today who are hearing this word this morning. Which side are you on? If your faith is in Jesus, you're on the side of the Lamb. You won't be deceived. Do not be anxious or afraid. Pray for those that are in this world and proclaim the hope of the gospel so that light might shine into darkness and death might be transformed to life by the power of God. But friend, if you're on this side, or if you're not, if you're not here, if your allegiance is not to Jesus, know that you're on this side yet. Your allegiance is to sin and to self and ultimately to the dragon. Choose this day who you will serve. Will your life be hidden with Christ, rescued from the grave, or will your life be devoted to following the dragon and all of his schemes? The choice is yours. The good news is you may come to Jesus today. 
simply by repenting of your sin, turning from your sin, turning from selfish ways you've lived your life, believing in his death for your sins and his resurrection from the grave and giving your life, falling in faith on Jesus, the lamb who was slain, the lion of Judah, who is risen and reigning and who will come again. Friend, if you respond to the gospel that way, through repentance and faith, calling on Jesus as Lord, the promise of scripture is that you will be saved. So I implore you, be saved today. Christians, I implore us, let us pray for and proclaim the gospel with boldness and compassion to those who are still living in darkness. Let us wage war against the dragon, that serpent, that the glory of Christ might be shown in the hearts of all who will come to know him. Let's pray together.